From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Inside Politics from Please Explain. I'm Jacqueline Maley. It's Friday, November 24. This week, a hostage exchange deal was brokered between Israel and Hamas. After six weeks of war, Israel and Hamas have agreed to a four-day temporary ceasefire to allow for the release of hostages. In Australia, on the domestic political front, we saw divisive protests over the Middle East conflict. And a strong political backlash from those protests. We've got some issues with community cohesion at the moment in Australia, as we do in most countries in the world. Uh, How can Prime Minister Anthony Albanese support social cohesion on this fraught issue? And is he doing a good job of it? And what role, if any, does opposition leader Peter Dutton have in calming community tensions? Meanwhile, on bread and butter issues, the Albanese government is coming under increasing pressure to address the cost of living crisis in a meaningful way. Young Australians already bearing the brunt of rising interest rates are now cutting back on essentials like food, insurance and fuel. The government can't put stimulus into the economy because that will only worsen inflation and it can't control what the Reserve Bank does on rate rises. So what can it do? And how much will voters blame the Prime Minister for the fact that it's getting harder and harder to make ends meet? Chief Political Correspondent David Crowe and I are here to dive into all these issues, firstly with our colleague, Foreign Affairs and National Security Correspondent Matthew Knott, and later with our Economics Correspondent Rachel Clun. David and Matthew, welcome to the podcast. G'day, Jackie. Hi, Matt. Lovely to be here. Now, as the Israel conflict wears on, the division is increasingly spilling over into the Australian community and into the Australian domestic political sphere. And this week we saw a few flashpoint protests in Sydney and Melbourne that caused political conflict. But before we get into the detail of those protests, I want to ask you both a more broad question, which is just about the role of our federal politicians. What role do they have in responding to community divisions over the Israel-Gaza war? David? To come people down to try and bring people together. I think these are essential functions for political leaders now, and it's the way in which political leaders should be judged. It's extremely difficult with different parts of the community basically at odds, and it's the role of the politicians to try and help make sure that everybody's communicating, not going after each other. Matt, how important is political leadership at a time like this, and does it actually have an impact in social cohesion on the ground? Uh, I think it does. And I've been interested in some of uh, the Prime Minister's remarks around this. He's he's been quite explicit in saying that, uh, of course, Australia's position is important, but that we have extremely little influence over what's going to happen in the Middle East. And he's trying to calm people down in in that way by saying that, of course, people have very uh, passionate views. Australia is trying to play a productive role here as part of the international community, but we are not the decisive actor here. You know, the decisive actors here would obviously be uh, Israel, Palestine, Egypt, uh, the United States, uh, Qatar, and we're essentially watching this from a long way away with little ability to influence events. What we can influence is what's happening here in the country, particularly on the streets of our major cities. I think everyone would recognise there's a role for protest. There's a role for people to express themselves, to have vigils, to make their political point clear. What's troubling our political leaders is whether that is spilling over into something a lot more dangerous, into something a lot more personal in terms of 
uh, attacks on uh, businesses, attacks on individuals, if this becomes violent uh, for no particular good outcome, that's what they're worried about. And they're worried that it's going to get worse. Mm. David, this week we saw both Anthony Albanese and Peter Dutton address the Melbourne Holocaust Museum, which had a reopening, and they both made remarks. What did you think about the sort of tone that they struck, and particularly the Prime Minister struck, on anti-Semitism and the increased social tensions we're seeing around this conflict? Well, I think they're both being upfront about it, and it is clearly a challenge right now. And I think it was a, a really important thing to do for both leaders to be in the one location on a fairly unified message at the same time. Melbourne, the Prime Minister delivering a passionate promise to stamp out anti-Semitism. Jewish Australians have been bearing a pain you should never have had to bear again. And you're feeling fear. In a rare show of political unity, Anthony Albanese shoulder to shoulder with the opposition leader. Whenever and wherever the forces of anti-Semitism are on the march, there is a need for moral courage and moral clarity. They were joined by the Premier. In fact, when you look back, we haven't seen enough of that. I mean, we saw early on after those terrible attacks on Israeli civilians on October 7, we immediately saw the coalition start talking about when is Anthony Albanese going to go and speak to Jewish leaders. So rather than sort of getting together at that point, there was already some political game playing really on the issue back then. So. What we saw this week was something we should be seeing a lot more of. And because they were both physically in the same place together with the Jewish community, they were both fairly unified in their criticism of anti-Semitism and their them wanting to send a message of uh, solidarity with those Jewish communities. And I mean, it's a pretty sombre event, I suppose, the reopening of a Holocaust museum as opposed to question time where they can be a little bit less well-behaved. Matt, I wanted to ask you, because obviously the problem with civil discourse on this topic is that Israel versus Palestine can very easily descend into Jews versus Muslims, and we see the scourge of bigotry raise its head. And you wrote a piece this week on rising anti-Semitism. Can you tell us what you learned when you were researching that piece? Yeah. uh, What Jewish groups here will tell you is that uh, they track these things and that there has been an explosion in uh, anti-Semitic incidents uh, since October 7. They're saying it's up about 500% over what it was before. Uh, the attacks, uh, this is obviously an incredibly complicated field, this field of anti-Semitism. You know, people can write books and PhDs about the topic of when criticism of Israel morphs into anti-Semitism or not. But I think we've seen some pretty clear examples that most decent people would say, has gone over the line. Uh, You know, we've seen uh, letterboxes uh, defaced with kill the Jews, uh, presumably because Jewish people live there. Uh, Israeli restaurants in Sydney are spray-painted with child murder. The Jewish uh, school with the jumping castle incident where they were denied that by uh, a Western Sydney business because they were told, you know, I'm not going to support Zionists and this was a Jewish school. You know, you're entering in the terrain of individuals who have nothing to do with this conflict. You may not even know what their position is on the the war in Gaza, you know, being punished. Mm. Uh, some of the protests are getting very, very personal and very heated against some of mm. the MPs. You know, I noticed Peter Khalil, who is of Egyptian descent, is copying a lot of very specific uh, kind of protest and, and abuse in this space. 
Yeah, so um, Islamophobia was not was not the topic of the piece that you wrote, but do you think that's also on the rise? Are we also seeing that particularly with high-profile Muslims, particularly members of parliament, and have any of the political leaders specifically addressed Islamophobia as a threat? Yeah, well, a- Anthony Albanese always makes a point, and so does Penny Wong, really, to try usually to mention both and to be even-handed and to say we're opposed to anti-Semitism or we're also opposed to... Islamophobia, the opposition sometimes has taken issue with that and said, you're using moral equivalence here. What Penny Wong says is, I'm showing moral consistency. I oppose any type of discrimination against anyone. Um, The groups that track this, they do say there's been a rise in incidents of Islamophobia since October 7. Last week, the Scanlon Foundation, which does the best work at tracking this type of thing, put out a survey that had been conducted before the war started, and that showed uh, that uh, 27% of Australians, so that's almost a third, say they have negative views towards Muslims, Uh, 16% say they have negative views towards Christians, and 9% said they had negative views towards Jewish people. So you can see that in, in normal times, there's quite a bit of uh, anti-Islamic sentiment that's there to be tapped into. I think what you see with this particular time is that the war and the focus on Israel leads to a particular focus on the Mm -hmm. Jewish community and they feel very vulnerable right now because of the overlap in the way people see the Jewish community and the state of Israel. Mm. I want to touch on some of the protests that we've seen or might be seeing this week. So we had a pro-Palestine protest at Port Botany in Sydney, protesting the arrival of an Israeli cargo ship that got pretty heated. 23 protesters were arrested. There were claims that the police were too heavy-handed. New South Wales Premier Chris Menz completely rejected those claims, but he did say that the protests were very difficult to manage. We also saw some back and forth in the political sphere over a pro-Palestine schools protest, which some school students are planning on for Friday, Sydney and Melbourne. David, I want to ask you about the political risks for the government in managing its response to those kinds of protests, because obviously people have a right to protest. That's a cornerstone of democracy. But most of the political commentary on those protests has been quite damning of the protesters or certainly disapproving of them. So what's the balance to be struck there and what are the risks for the government? I think with the protests, the way things began kind of highlighted the reason uh, for politicians to be so critical of some of the protests because we saw racial vilification of Jewish people at some of the early protests. But that mm. most clearly, the one at the Sydney Opera House, within days of the hostilities. So that really set the tone, I think, for this concern about the tone of the pro-Palestine protests and the demonstrations, the concern about marches, the concern I heard from people about the fact that some of the uh, demonstrations were being held in parks that were close to synagogues. Yeah, Caulfield in Melbourne being a, an example of a protest that really did scare members of the Jewish community. And so I think that that has shaped the way political leaders have responded there. Yeah. We saw Tony Burke sort of make that point a little bit this week. He said that he was wary that some of the Palestine protests could descend into anti-Semitism. But he also said that his community in southwestern Sydney just wants to see the deaths stop. So some of the Labor front bench or some of the, you know, the Labor MPs have got large Muslim constituencies in their home electorate. So they're also presumably lobbying the Prime Minister behind closed doors to sort of strike a balance on this stuff? I think the Labor cabinet ministers are 
are in earnest here. They really are feeling this because they're members of their own communities. Look at somebody like Ed Husick in Western Sydney. He's from a Muslim background. He made the contentious remark about uh, the collective punishment of people in Gaza. And that's, that offends some people, but he is feeling that from his own community. And I think that they've been very careful in the last couple of weeks to, with their public remarks. Tony Burke, for instance, got asked about whether the incursion into Gaza was genocide, a very loaded term. Mm. He didn't go anywhere near that again in interviews this week. I think they can see the incredible difficulty of commenting on a conflict so far away where there is no Australian influence over the outcome or a very minor one. So they're, they're moderating their remarks uh, because it's such a difficult issue. The other thing I think that Penny Wong has said, which is that she wanted to see steps towards a ceasefire. Now, that came under instant criticism uh, for suggesting that uh, she wanted to keep Hamas in place and so forth, and that's actually not what she said. And you can see that there are other people who've been talking about steps towards a ceasefire. And then in this week, there are steps towards a ceasefire. So I think some of, when you look back at some of those comments from Labor people, particularly Penny Wong, I think you can see that some of the criticism is actually quite unjustified. For this discussion, we're going to sub in our very own Rachel Clun, economics correspondent extraordinaire. Welcome, Rach. Thanks so much, Jack. Rach, you're on the cost of living beach, and it seems that living is only getting more costly. And this week you wrote that some people are skipping doctor's visits or postponing having their prescriptions filled because they're broke. Can you tell us about that data? Yeah, so that data was from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, very trustworthy source, one of my favourites for data. They found that people put off seeing their GP in in quite extraordinary numbers. So the percentage of people who put off seeing their doctor was 3.5% in 2021-22. That doubled to 7% in the last financial year. And doctor's fees also rose by about $10 over the same period. The data also showed that young people were most likely to be affected by these sorts of changes, you know, putting off refilling their scripts, putting off going to the hospital. Um, you know, more than 10% of 25 to 35-year-olds put that off. So that really shows you where cost of living pressures are really biting in the community, I think. And there was also data showing that a third of businesses are considering laying off workers before Christmas. How solid is that as an economic indicator? Well, that's really interesting data. I mean, I don't think it's a case of, you know, a third of businesses are going to lay off hundreds of staff, but it is an indication that businesses are starting to look at reorganising. That particular data from the Australian HR Institute, which was a survey of their own members, found that 71% of businesses were also looking at hiring. So that kind of goes to that kind of restructuring thing. But I think what that broadly says is that next year is going to be quite challenging for job seekers as well as businesses as cost of living pressures continue to hurt. Mm. David, how badly would a rise in unemployment damage the government at this point in the political cycle? Would they be able to ride it out? I think they'd struggle with that. Whether they can ride things out at the next election is a huge open question. But at the moment, strong employment numbers are one of the things they keep pointing to when they've got so much bad news on other fronts. And they're really copying far more political pressure on those other fronts. 
the fact that there are jobs out there in the community, people are kind of taking for granted after the pandemic. And they're really looking at well, all these costs that are going up. And I think uh, healthcare costs are a prime example because that's something that Labor likes to point to as a core Labor legacy, Medicare. But of course, the cost keeps going up. It's dissuading people from going. And my experience this week was I paid $175 to see the doctor and got an $80 rebate. Mm. And that's in Canberra where you cannot find bulk billing. So the pressure is not just on uh, the economic indicators. It's on issues like bulk billing rates for Medicare, whether Labor's election promise to build more healthcare clinics, uh, basically GP clinics is what they promised, is being delivered fast enough. Mm. And that pressure just keeps growing now that they're basically halfway through this parliamentary term and now they've got to show that they've delivered. And I think one of the challenges for the government at the moment is they never have enough time, really. No political leader ever has as much time as they think they have in power. Uh, the, the parliamentary terms are short. There's this pressure to the, deliver results. And before too long, they get to the next election and they get clobbered by the other side who can say, look, you promised to do this on bulk billing or you promised mm. to do this on GP clinics and you haven't delivered enough yeah. uh, in this first term of parliament. I think that's where the government's really quite vulnerable at the moment. Mm, yeah, it's it's quite easy to measure, I suppose, in a political cycle. Opposition leader Peter Dutton is really seeking to capitalise on the uncertainty of the economic environment and to make sure that voters directly blame the Prime Minister for it. Rach, what does Dutton say the government should be doing differently? Well, one of the opposition leader's big attack lines this week has been on rising electricity prices, and he's partially right here. So in the September inflation data, higher energy prices were a big factor in the higher inflation, along with rents and higher fuel prices. Electricity prices rose by 4.2% in September. But the counter to that, that uh, Treasurer Jim Chalmers has been really you know, quite forceful in reiterating is that without the government's energy bill relief program that they unveiled in their previous budget, those electricity prices would have gone up by 18.6%. Mm. I mean, that's an extraordinary amount of inflation and 4.2% is still high, but, you know, there, there's really this kind of claim and counterclaim about how well the government's policies are helping to reduce inflation. I think... On some of the core questions, what would the coalition do instead? They are a policy vacuum on a lot of these fronts at the moment. They're not saying what else they would do on the cost of living because they're taking a long time to figure out what their own policies are before the next election. So, you know, in terms of what we have as an alternative, it's a huge mystery. So, even though there's this pressure on the government, I think it is revealing that we don't see in our political polling, a huge boost for Peter Dutton in a, in a personal way on key measures like net approval for him or preferred prime minister. Rach, just really quickly, you had another interesting piece this week that was a generational warfare piece. We always love those. Um, it was sort of saying that retired Australians are still spending. They're spending big on holidays and eating out, but under 30s, are reducing their spending drastically. I suppose this is a cohort that's more likely to rent in particular. What does that tell us? Is it a sort of two-speed, two-generation economy at the moment? Well, it's almost a three-speed economy, and I think it really goes to how interest rates you know, they're a very blunt tool from the Reserve Bank, but they affect different generations in different ways, right? So 
Gen Xs who are more likely to have a mortgage, they earn a bit more money. They're spending more than they were last year, but they're spending below inflation. So the dollars they're spending are buying them less goods and services. Uh, then you have the younger millennials and you know, the, particularly the 25 to 29-year-olds who are really struggling. They've pulled back spending quite drastically. They may be renting for the first time. They're not earning as much as, you know, older people are and they're really struggling with the cost of groceries and energy bills and those sorts of things. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the baby boomers, people aged over 65, more likely to own a home outright, though they don't all own their own home that they'll have some savings and the higher interest rates mean they're getting more money on top of their savings, which means they've got more room to spend and buy things like holidays or dining out. Mm. Maybe both at the same time if they're really lucky. Maybe. That's all we've got time for, unfortunately, but I know that we're going to have you, well, David, we'll have you back next week, Rach, again soon. So thank you both very much for joining us. Thanks, Jack. Talk then. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Chi Wong with technical assistance by Debbie Harrington. Our executive producer is Ruby Schwartz. Please Explain is a production of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Jacqueline Maley. This is Inside Politics from Please Explain. Thank you for listening.